0: Hello, and welcome to Foreign Affairs Inbox, the entirely student run and student produced podcast of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. We're your producers and hosts, Taylor Galgano and Emma Anderson, two seniors presenting you with a
1: journalism and international
0: affairs collab on the latest trending global matters.
1: This season's theme is peace, conflict, and protests. By the end of each episode, you will understand the issue at hand, no matter how complex. Prepare to hear from us and different Elliott School faculty to help with our own expert analysis.
0: Want to hear us chat about a topic you're interested in? Slide into our DMs at Elliott School GW on Twitter or Instagram. Hello and welcome to the special International Women's Day episode of the Foreign Affairs Inbox.
1: Yes, we're very excited to be here. For those of you who have been following Emma and my Elliott School career, we did get our start on last International Women's Day.
0: We did. And you can listen to that episode on our Spotify page.
1: (laughs) And our Apple podcast where where we interview Dr. Shirley Graham. And it was a great episode. Here we are a year later still doing our thing, Emma.
0: We are. And what's really exciting is that this is the first week of the commission on the status of women. So we will be sort of kicking that off with our own little podcast today. So all in all, important holiday, great <laughs> holiday. We love doing a special edition podcast for it every year.
1: Yes. And today we are very excited about this episode because we actually met this woman at a GW uh, foreign service women's networking event. We were so excited to meet our guest today. Her name is Susan Slomback. Ms. Slombach has over 25 years of experience in the field of international development, focused on gender and women's economic empowerment. She has just completed an assignment in Afghanistan as chief of party for a U.S. aid funded project. Ms. Slombach conceptualized, designed, and launched the project that aimed at creating and improving incomes for over 15,000 women in the embroidered products sector in Afghanistan. Ms. Slombek has lived and worked in a number of diverse settings, including Afghanistan, which she just came back from a few months ago, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, Algeria, Ethiopia, Sri Lanka, and Vietnam. Wow.
0: Very impressive.
1: And also, just as a side note, throughout this episode, we're going to keep the Afghan woman's names protected just for their own safety.
0: Very exciting to be discussing on International Women's Day. Thank you so much for being here. Why don't we set the stage? What is Afghanistan like today, in particular from the women's context?
2: Afghanistan is now the least peaceful country in the world, and that certainly has contributed to women's insecurity. But while insecurity remains ever-present, the people of Afghanistan show unwavering resilience, and certainly women are leading the charge. Many women cannot seek employment because of restricted social rules and a lack of basic education. Women are also very much victims of sexual harassment and intimidation. Only one-fifth of Afghan women are actively employed. Most work in informal sectors, which means that they are not really credited for contributing to the economy, which drastically is underreported. However, on the positive side, women hold more positions of power than they have ever in any point in Afghanistan's history, including ambassadorships and more than one quarter of seats in parliament. So while in some places women are lagging behind in others, women are progressing. So I think that that's good news.
1: Yeah, it sounds like good news. Right. So just to clarify for some of our listeners, when you said that most women kind of work in informal sectors, what does that entail? informal
2: sectors are not really employed quote, quote. They work in agriculture. A lot of women are working in home-based businesses. I like to call them micro-enterprises because if they're home-based and they are earning an income, they are, in fact, micro-enterprises. They could be working with embroideries like the project on which I was working was focused. They can be doing beauty salon work. They can be doing agriculture-type activities, including kitchen gardening. So women are very active, but they're just not represented well, so
1: you start to talk about the embroidery and as that sort of one informal job that a lot of women in Afghanistan do. I know you just got back from your project in Afghanistan a few
2: months ago now. Can you give us a brief overview of what you did there? Sure. Working with a U.S.-based implementing partner, I helped to design and launch a USAID-funded project focused on creating and improving incomes for women in the embroidered products sector and also facilitating the sale of embroidered products in both domestic and international markets. The project aims to assist 15,000 women by collaborating with local implementing partners. And I want to stress the importance of what local implementing partners do for a USAID-funded project. We as Americans or foreigners can't go out into the field to actually work directly with the women. It's very rare that I was able to go out and see these women actually in a training program or working in their homes especially. But through local implementing partners, they really facilitate and champion effort. So what we did and what the project is currently doing is we're working in key regions throughout Afghanistan to build the capacity in both business and and technical embroidery skills, including understanding designs and trends to respond to local markets and international markets. It's very important for Afghanistan to understand what the world is like outside of their borders so they can become competitive in the global economy. And women will help to do that. Embroidery is a very important factor in just about every Afghan family. And in some inter- in some research that we did on- On countries that are importing embroidery from around the world, we found that many countries in Europe are number one countries for importing embroidery. And that means there is a market for these women to produce these goods, sell these goods, and potentially sustain markets through the sale of these goods.
0: You were talking a lot about USAID and local implementing partners. I'm curious what you feel like about development projects and their capacity to be sustainable, because I know a big critique of USAID projects and just development projects in general is that they're disconnected from local communities. But like you said, you engage a lot of local implementing partners. So what has been the effect that you've seen of that? And do you think that these projects have the capacity to be sustainable?
2: Well, the only way I can answer this is by looking through the donor's perspective, and sustainability of a project simply implies the continuation of a project's activities and even changed behaviors of the beneficiaries themselves to maintain that type of activity once the project ends. There will be some project beneficiaries that will survive and thrive, and there will be some that will fall back into their old patterns. I have to say that, you know, there's no easy answer to this question, because once assistance goes away, some are unable to maintain the momentum at the same level as when the donor assistance was available and these people were actually being facilitated by these donor-assisted programs. It's sort of a checks and balances, and those checks and balances cannot be monitored once the project ends. That's the bad news. When we end a project, we can say, oh, we've improved the lives of 15,000 women by X percent, and they've increased their incomes by X percent. But you know what? The proof is, say – 16, 18, 24 months later, when the project has ended, how many of these women or how many of these beneficiaries are still actually doing these activities? And that's where we fall short, and rightfully so. You know, there isn't a pot of money that's put aside to go back in, say, 18 months after the project to make sure that these people are still doing the same thing. So, because there's usually no funding to do that, we can only predict by the outcomes at the time of the closing of the project. And so, it's essential that a robust exit strategy be in place, which includes follow-on resources to maintain relationships with the beneficiaries, and I do hope that the project on which I was working will do that. I've certainly made my recommendations, and let's hope for the best.
1: But there's really no way, as you said, to check that and make sure things are still sort of going as well as you left them.
2: Well, I have to say that I also managed a similar project in Pakistan a few years prior to my involvement in Afghanistan. And with resources and with relationships that I've developed, occasionally I've actually just given them a call. And I've said, hey, what's going on now in this province? Or have any of our women still been successful? And I have to say that that project ended in 2014, and many of them have, in fact, maintained or grown their businesses So I do have to say that the development initiatives do work, but we cannot really track them as closely as we'd like.
1: You talked about how you're still able to keep in touch with many of the women you worked with. Can you share one or two examples of women you've worked with in Afghanistan who have benefited from your project?
2: Yes, as a matter of fact, there's a story that I absolutely love, and this is a a woman that is currently a beneficiary of the project. One of our beneficiaries enrolled in our training program to enable her to build her business and technical skills, as I mentioned previously, and to manage up to 30 women embroiderers to promote and sell their products in the markets. This is an unhappy story in the fact that she was forced to marry at the age of 13 to a man four times her age. She was never able to go to school until her husband passed away 15 years ago but due to her husband's death she was left with no income and unfortunately with her children she moved to Kabul to try to find a better life and this is where the resilience kicks in and this is where we have to say that Afghan women do survive and thrive in ways in which we cannot even imagine. She attended courses to build her skills including literacy courses and that helped her to enroll in our project Today, because of the project, she took a major step and registered her business formally with the ministry to support herself and her children. And I want to emphasize the importance of a registered business because once she's a registered business, she is a member of the, let's just say, tracked and formal economy. That's a big step for a woman. And she was able to do that. She's producing embroidered products, and she advocates for women coming from a similar background, so she's looking to help women who possibly were forced to marry at an early age, and she wants to help them to survive and thrive as well. She works with the families of her embroiderers to enable them to work with her. So, first, she had the resilience to take the leap of faith to improve her situation, and through the project, she gained the confidence to build her business with long-term goals of helping other women. So, in my mind, she's a champion, and I really wish her the best.
1: Wow, so that's that's a great story. While you were in Afghanistan, did you sort of run into any challenges that women faced while trying to introduce their products into the market?
2: Yes, and this is one problem that I think needs to be addressed, and the project is addressing it, and that is the quality of the products that will be available to the local market are very different than the products that should be prepared for international markets. The women have a mindset of, if I produce something of too high of a quality, it won't sell, because they're only looking at it from the local market perspective. This project was able to introduce Afghan hand embroidery already to international markets in India, Kazakhstan, and Milan, Italy. Oh, wow. Yes. I'm very excited and proud of what we were actually able to accomplish in Milan. An international market assessment that we conducted told us that Italy is the number one country in the world that imports embroidery and we just happened to be able to get some funding from our donor USAID to introduce embroidery to the Italian market. We selected four high-end designers and we brought them to Italy to Milan Italy and we did something called a fashion presentation the first ever fashion show of Afghan high-end fashion in Europe Wow. You know, it was amazing. And we have proven through the fashion presentation in Italy that Afghan hand embroidery is, in fact, presentable, saleable, and marketable. But some of the women in these rural areas don't believe that if they produce these high-quality products that they will sell because they're so accustomed to only selling to the local market. So it's the goal of the project to ensure that we help them to understand it's not just about selling locally, it's about how we can help them sell globally.
0: What I think is so cool about that is how like embroidery is a very gendered industry. And so I think it's really cool that your project proves that women's work has like economic value around the world.
2: Oh, absolutely. And like I said, it's the products that sell. And when you put these embroidered accents on them and you tell the story, there are a lot of conscious consumers out there that want to buy these things. And when they know the story, they'll go back and they'll buy them again and again. It's very important to tell the story, to get into the heart of the consumer, to understand that while they're buying this beautiful piece of clothing or possibly a home accessory, that it was produced by the this woman in the village who's now feeding her family, her children are going to school, and we are in fact helping them through the consumerism that we're creating.
0: So something that we talked about individually between the three of us was a famous feminist economist named Nyla Kabir, who's a professor at the London School of Economics, and she has theorized her own beliefs on what constitutes women's economic empowerment. Could you explain Kabir's beliefs and definitions, and does your project help women through this framework?
2: Absolutely. I have a high level of respect for Nyla Kabir and her feminist economist views. Her definition of empowerment encompasses the process by which those who have been denied the ability to make strategic life choices to acquire that ability. A number of studies indicate that for women, this has been indeed happening over the past decades, from improved conditions under which women work and live. Women are now rising because of more open and amenable conditions of choice. However, empowerment is subjective. So I have to, you know, really put that into the conversation here because what I may view as empowerment, you may not view as empowerment, or maybe some of our listeners here. So it enters into the nebulous territory of culture, beliefs, social norms, social justice, politics, and economic conditions. Our project began research through the attitudes of men and women who are actually related to the beneficiaries of our project. And what we did was we held something called a family forum. And we brought these men and women into Kabul, or we brought them to Kabul to ask them, are you going to actually accept this family member who was enrolled into the project? And overwhelmingly, I have to say that uh, we had uh, very positive results. However, it's the test of time that will determine whether this is in fact true because economic empowerment does not always lead to positive change. As a matter of fact, it can lead to negative consequences. So if male family members perceive their role as a threat, Uh, to their own importance, possibly their masculinity, then it could be a problem. However, there could be positive effects. The increased incomes helps to shape the way in which their family grows, in which they're viewed in the community. And what I'm hopeful for is that there will be positive change. And again, this takes time to monitor. So I'm hoping that in a year from now we'll be hearing good news and possibly I can speak with you again next Women's Day. (laughs)
0: What advice would you give to development practitioners who are trying to incorporate gender sensitivity into their projects?
2: Well, the advice that I'd like to give is while we're all uh, concentrating on our theories and, you know, things that we learn through our academic studies that ultimately putting theory into practice. It's, again, subjective to the situation. I'd like to just say that you are an inspiration to others. And more importantly, be prepared to be inspired by the women you meet and work with, because I certainly have been There isn't a day that goes by that I do not feel pride in the work that we do to help women achieve their dreams. And these dreams are attainable when we work together. So um, what I'm looking to see in the future is that there's not only male gender champions, there's female gender champions. We're working together to help women aspire to their goals. And that's hopefully what I'll be dedicating the remaining part of my career to.
1: Thank you so much for coming on today and celebrating International Women's Day with us. The projects that you did in Afghanistan and Pakistan were both super interesting
2: to hear about. Thank you so much. I am very honored to be here with you as well. Thank you.
0: Happy International Women's Day.
2: Happy International Women's Day to you as well. Wow,
1: what a great episode for this International Women's Day.
0: I loved learning more about Susan Slombeck's project in Afghanistan. She said a lot of really interesting things about economic empowerment for women that I thought were really important, especially like the way she highlighted how economic empowerment is a cultural issue.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, Emma, how did you feel listening to this? Because I know this is like the field that you want to go into. So the whole time I was thinking about, I was sort of imagining you in twenty years from now doing kind of similar projects and stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, what I think is really interesting about development and part of the reason I asked the question about the capacity to be sustainable is because development has sort of a bad reputation, right? For just sort of coming in and then pulling the rug out from under and creating dependency. But the way she spoke about her project, it seemed like it did have a long lasting impact. And I really do believe that the biggest glaring issue from development missions and projects around the world is the lack of gender sensitivity. Because I think that when you engage women, you engage like an entire society, which is something that we know, but it's not really implemented in all different development projects. And I think that in order to really achieve sustainability, women have to be involved.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Well, thank you guys for tuning in, and happy IWD 2020. Best holiday ever. Like what you've heard? Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, link your friends. I'm Emma Anderson. And I'm Taylor Galgano. And thank you for tuning into this episode.